Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Driven Chat Podcast. My name is John Markar and sat to my left is Amy Shaw. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. I've got a cup of tea, holding a cup of tea, feeling quite comforted. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're in our homely, our home from home, in a homely bedroom at Caffeine Machine, which sounds a bit weird when you say it. Like it that, did doesn't sound it? a bit odd. I'm actually sat on a bed, <laughs> would you believe? I'm sat on a bed in one of our bedrooms. Usually we use our studio truck on the grounds here at Caffeine Machine, uh, but in the winter months, with it being dark and cold, um, it's all a bit of a faff. So we've uh, we've taken the lazy option and we are we are here in a bedroom. But fear not, dear listener, myself and Amy are not alone in this bedroom. Um, it's getting weirder actually the more I think about <laughs> it. But it's um, oh, no, I'm spilling my tea. And Amy's spilling her tea. <laughs> It's chaotic. It's gone wrong. It's all gone wrong. And we're only, well, I don't know, less than a minute into the recording. <laughs> but there we are. Um, Amy, I'd like to hand over the intro- introduction reins to you because okay. I think, I mean, this is your guest. Yes. Your invite. So therefore, it's only right that I pass on the introduction baton to you. Well, thank you. Well, I mean, it's always funny introducing somebody because if you're listening to this, you've probably had to read something on a screen <laughs> to be able to, to get to this listening point. And in that case, you already know who our guest is. But to give a... And overall, I mean, he looks like a rock star and has done for, for most of his oh. journalism time. You, you have done. When you had a little long, bit of longer hair, you did look like you could have walked out like the Arctic Monkeys or something like that. No, a little homeless shelter otherwise. One of the two, wasn't it? I've always close thought, thing. <laughs> well, I mean, I've always thought about more the rock and roll vibe, but um, that is okay. the, the, the lovely voice of Mr. David Lillywhite, who, for those of you who do not know, 
uh, is the co-founder of Octane Magazine and autoclassics.com, making sure I've got that written down right, and more recently, Magneto Magazine. Welcome, David. Hey. Hello, thank you. <laughs> it's funny, like, when you read, even that's just like skimming the surface of kind of your career, because I know you've done many exciting things, worked for Bike Magazine, Bike Magazine, I'm going to say. For, yeah, it was for, Bike. Yeah, yeah, that was it. And um, is it called Bike Magazine or just Bike? I think I've you have to say Bike Magazine, magazine don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that Octane was always Octane Magazine, but it's like, it's Octane, it's just, yeah. just that. Um, but not many people have got on their CV that they've started one silly successful magazine, let alone two silly successful magazines and a silly successful website. So if we were to roll by, right back to the beginning, maybe not to the beginning of like, so you were born in whenever you were born. <laughs> but kind of let's think about the beginning of Octane because that is what, you know, when I first got into car photography, I had no idea, you know, I, I didn't particularly like cars or classic cars even you know kind of kind of like them but the the thing that got me into thinking right who the hell am I going to go and speak to about photographing for I don't know a classic car magazine I looked on the shelf at Sainsbury's and I thought huh that one looks like my kind of magazine it looks cool it looks like it's got good photography and it was Octave magazine you've got the ability to be interesting to people who are not interested in cars so that as far my re- as my research has gone, started as a conversation in a pub. Of course. Your, as, a, as all the best. As all the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah, come on, let's be honest. So you were with um, your, your co-founder, Jeff Love. Were you friends at that point? Or did you just happen to meet in a, mag- in a pub and have a few pints in and be like, hey, you like cars, I like cars, we like to write, let's start a magazine. Yeah, I don't think he'd mind if I said I don't think we were friends at the time, <laughs> but we were, we'd been colleagues, colleagues at uh, EMAP. Uh, and we'd done a little bit when I was freelance. I think he tried to get me doing a bit on uh, Practical Classics mm-hmm. at the time, which I'd been on years before. Um, and then, yeah, we got pulled into a meeting for a magazine called Practical Performance Car that's still still around. And the guys doing that wanted to know if Jeff and I wanted to be involved with it. And we kind of talked it through and we left them to it, but walked out of the pub game. So what, you want to do a magazine? Yeah, what, you want to do a magazine? <laughs> and so we went to the next pub down the road, obviously, and we talked it through, and Jeff had really thought it through, but he said, where do you think the gap is? And I said, oh, it's got to be an interesting magazine at the top end of classic cars, because everything's got so boring. Um, and, you know, people, people into classic cars are usually quite interesting, but all the magazines were just really, really dull. Um, so that was kind of the background, and... He'd already thought it through and thought Robert Kucha and Sanjay Sitanar would be really good sort of co-partners in this. And then, um, I mean, it, it goes on and on, this story, so I won't bore you to death. <laughs> no, do, but, <laughs> and what year is we, this, does yeah, that interest? This is 2002 when okay. we started talking, mm. late 2002. And I was just, well, Jeff had just got married. I was just getting married. I was uh, just moved house Every little bit of stress you can possibly put in is like, right, we'll do that one, that one. Oh, a new business. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, so we went looking for backing and um, we went through venture capital people. We went through sort of uh, enthusiasts who we knew, big car collectors. And we'd say, all right, well, let's get eight of you and each put in a chunk of money. And then we'd get to sort of six or seven of them and want to drop off the other end and you never quite got there. And venture capital people wanted arms, legs, 
place on the board. Well, we didn't want a board. <laughs> uh, so it was all a bit, like, we don't know if this is going to happen. And then Sanjay met a friend who was friends with Simon Jordan, who was at the time uh, chairman of Crystal Palace Football Club. Made lots of money in mobile phones, really into cars, and looking to do a sort of personal dragon's den kind of thing. So we went to Crystal Palace and we had a meeting with him, and um, which was it was quite disturbing because I was a Watford supporter, <laughs> so I didn't want to go anywhere near Crystal Palace. Um, but he was he was quite aggressive, but he was the one who said, "All right, yeah, I believe in you guys." Gave us a chunk of money. And we were kind of off and we launched by, I think we launched early May 2003. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty rapid. And um, we were quite optimistic and put huge amounts of copies into WH Smith's and all the different shops and most of them came back. <laughs> but actually it did get a really good foothold right from the start. Mm. And that was the start of Octane. So yeah, 2003. That must have been quite a... I'm trying to get my head around the the timescales because, of course, back in 2003, the, the internet ultimately for the masses is still in its infancy, really, isn't it? It's although you know a lot of people, if they were very lucky, they might have had the internet at home in the late 90s, early noughties. Suddenly, the internet really started booming. At that point, if you cast your memory back, was there any any thought at all that magazines in printed form might be entering a I don't want to say like a, a difficult chapter or a final chapter, but of course it's no secret now, is it, that print media is is a dying luxury really for a lot of um, of the big publishing companies. At that point, was it just was there any inclination that that might even be a factor to consider in the next ten years or so? I'm trying to remember, but I'm pretty sure I remember while I was still employed at EMAP, which was up until about 2000 before I went freelance. Mm. There was lots of talk of how we mix print with an internet product. Oh wow! Okay. Um, and you know how we sort of there was there was talk of changing the whole dynamic. Uh, I'm thinking I'm not sure how this is going to work, mm. but I do remember those uh, phrases and I do remember those meetings trying to work out how you get classic cars and modern cars onto the internet and make it work for people and still have a print magazine. Mm. Um, and I think at the same time. Q magazine, which I used to read a lot, they, I'm pretty sure at the time, they, they took their pagination right back and put all their reviews on the internet around that time. And the print magazine just turned into something half its size. Wow. Because then you went, I mean, you went, then decided to, how many years was it from starting Octane to starting the website autoclassics.com? I left Octane after I think it was 171 issues which is more than enough for anybody I like like, somebody else does it now you, you end up yeah you, you don't judge time in terms of years oh, it's, God it's no. issues now yeah yeah totally uh which was that was August 2017 I left so I do know really yeah. 14 years so I mean in that time did you think to yourself okay at some point as, as John was saying we're going to have to relook at maybe printed magazines and move something over to an online platform because what I'm interested, especially, is the way that you did go from print to online, which is, you know, expected. But then you've now gone from online back to print. And to be able to go from, you know, when you started Octane, you said, you know, you had to find where the, not necessarily the gap in the market or how can we be different from all of these other, you know, magazines which are boring. Now, in this day and age, sorry, maybe you didn't say that exactly. I did. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is now, in Magneto started in, oh, I want to say 2018, 19? 
2018. Yeah, I had to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, by this point, you know, internet is well and truly there with many, many interesting places that you can look at car, car reviews, classic cars, all this stuff. You know, YouTube, not even think about the, the video side. What made you think, you know what, let's go back to print. And how did you think, you know, we can be different or we can still sell our products by doing it this way? What That, that must have been, I mean, from, from my point of view, that sounds quite scary. But what was the thought process for that? I think it's it was the internet, really, that made Magneto. Hmm, because, yeah, because... Uh, digital had scared a lot of publishers, so they downgraded a bit like we're talking about Q Magazine all those years back. In more recent years, loads and loads of publishers have downgraded their print uh, because they think, well, the internet's going to get bigger and bigger, digital's going to get bigger and bigger, so no one's going to want print. So we'll preempt that and we'll downgrade the paper stock, They'll, we'll cut budgets, and so fewer people buy the products. And the publishers go, see, mm-hmm. I told you. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, actually, is that not because the product's not good enough? Um, and also, there's this complete digital onslaught. You can find anything, but you've got to look for it. Mm. Um, so if you if you serve up something, a print product that's curated, that's got surprises in, uh, or that's just got something that's not that surprising but is more in-depth than you could find anywhere else and that you can sit back and enjoy, then I think that's one step of it. Mm. Then you've got a lot of magazines out there still. I mean, despite everything we're saying about you know print supposedly yeah, being yeah, dead, completely. there are so many magazines. They're coming out weekly, monthly, etc. And I think people, they're turning up on people's doorsteps and they're wrapped in the cellophane and they stay wrapped in the cellophane because, again, it's too much. You've got all the digital, you've got monthly magazines. So the whole idea of Magneto is kind of a bit of quality time, really. It's that slow thinking thing where you do finally sit back, you appreciate the, uh, the quality of it and the paper, the photography looks much better, it's nicer to read because the print stands out on the decent paper, it's not sunk into a cheap paper. And you've got a bit, bit of relaxation. Mm-hmm. And if it looks right, then, okay, it looks good on the coffee table. It's a terrible thing, but mm-hmm. it does. Uh, and it looks good on the shelf and you don't throw it away. And even unwrapping it is an experience because it turns up in a nice cardboard wrap instead of cellophane. Mm. So that was the thinking. And I think without all the digital onslaught, I will say it again, mm. although it's a brilliant thing, I don't think Magneto would have happened. Is there any plans to kind of expand an online version of Magneto? Are you going to keep it print and quarterly for kind of the near future? We have a website uh, and there are probably up to 10 stories uh, a week on it uh, and a fair bit of social media. It's not, you know, it's, it, it's not throwing ourselves at people. It, it's fairly subtle. But just so people can keep abreast of what's happening. So it's, you know, interesting sales, it's new events, how events went, winners at Pebble Beach, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we've got a weekly newsletter, uh, email newsletter, and that works really, really well. And a lot of people really seem to appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the digital side. I don't think we'd go much further than that. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, you don't want to saturate people. You don't want to 
them to think, oh, no, not more Magneto. <laughs> I don't want any more. Yeah, no um, more Lily White. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is something, I suppose, which I'm finding interesting is your thought process behind printed magazines as well, because there must be some, so many people do try, as you said, to start a magazine like even this week I've heard about a great magazine that's had to stop printing because you know there's just been not enough you know being sold so when it comes to the formula which you must maybe you've got a secret formula that, that works on how to make a successful printed car magazine what would you say are some of the key elements of that get it into the hands of the right people okay so not about wide distribution through all the WH Smiths around the UK no <laughs> um, as, as bizarre as it seems I mean you can do that but the retailers are going to take 50%. You're going to have to put lots and lots of copies out, half of which will probably remain unsold, or they might do, just because you can't risk them going out of stock. So you may well end up with two copies, one copy, whatever, in every single shop being thrown away. And that's a huge waste. Yeah. So there's actually not very much profit in magazines on shelves. So the, the decent model is subscription. Uh, which, of course, all magazines push, try and push people into. But there is a reason for that. It does, you know, it does keep magazines going. It is really important. But what we've also done is made sure it gets to, for example, anyone who's entered a car into Pebble Beach or Amelia Island, Concours, um, or Concours of Elegance, Hampton Court, any one of those big events or a lot of historic racing events, they will all receive a copy. Um, so then advertisers know that they are advertising their car to people who are buying cars. They're not just buying magazines off the shelves mm -hmm. in W. Smith, Tesco, <laughs> etc. They are buying cars. Yeah. And then anything else on top of that is, is a bonus for us. I suppose it's, a, it's, um, it's the, the obvious way of looking about it because some people think, OK, maybe I need to find the best stories of the best cars, the best writers on the you know, best quality. And it's not necessarily about any of that. It's just making sure that at the end point, you've got it in the people's hands who, who are going to be the, the most valuable to the, you guys as the magazine and the advertisers and everybody who wants to read it. I think they wouldn't bother with it. They would throw it away if it didn't have good stories in, if it didn't look good. Etc. So obviously, those, I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah. These are the best stories and the best cars as well. And we do go. We try really hard, uh, to get the the very best stories out there. Yeah. When so. it came to to thinking about the first, um, the very first issue of, you know, let's go with Octane first. When it came mm. to the very first issue of Octane, how what was the thought process to try and make? Because obviously, the first thing you see is the front cover. Mm. When you're trying to go against everybody who is already on the shelves and, and you know people who like those classic car magazines they like them for a reason they're like yeah well you know that is all the the technical geekery that i want to read and i'm not bothered about who i don't know whatever story is behind it or they may not think they are until you're like actually no, there's a massive amount of people who would love to read about this when you're trying to battle that whole range initially what was the thing that you put on the cover or the the stories that you put inside to try and grab people's attention because i guess that was You've got maybe one issue to, to really go for it, maybe a mm. second issue, but how many issues would you have to go into before you're thinking, actually, this isn't, this isn't working very well? To answer that last bit, most new magazines, three issues in is the, is the real danger point. Really? Because then the printers are saying, uh, no, we need you to pay. Mm. The advertisers still aren't paying. You know, we weren't getting money in from advertisers or from the likes of WH Smiths uh, for 90 days. So you've by that point, you've done three issues. You've had to pay, pay your 
print and paper. You've had to pay contributors, um, but you're not getting any money back at all. So as soon as cash flow has, has stopped like that uh, and you've run through that startup money, then you say goodbye to your magazine. Wow. And is that uh, the same for quarterlies and monthlies or is it harder with monthlies? Um, I guess quarterlies is easier and that you've got that amount of time to collect some money, mm. uh, but you're never going to get rich on a quarterly because you know, it's only four times a year. You yeah, know? It's, it's very irregular. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we got to three months and we were doing all right. The advertising was selling really well. Uh, it was getting a good reception, but we hadn't had any money back. Overseas magazine sales, you don't get paid for six months. Right. And we had really targeted overseas. Mm-hmm. So our cash flow was terrible. And we were just on the point of running out of money uh, in that we were sort of almost scraping together savings to pay the few staff we had. Wow. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it just began to take off and the money started coming in from advertising. And it's like, oh, we've done it. <laughs> so it was a bit, it was a bit fraught. Yeah. Um, at the start of the question, the yeah. Octane first issue, you have to bear in mind at the time that the sort of competitor magazines were had gone very mid-market and mass-market, and rightly so, but there was nothing at the top end, and the top end of the market was really taking off, and the, there were more and more auction houses and more and more really top-end dealers. So we went straight in with a Ferrari 250 GTO versus Bizzarini. <laughs> uh, and just the fact that we could get those cars together, yeah, that that kind of made the statement and we went on from there with those kind of things, GT40, stuff like that. Amazing. I guess um, one of the questions that I often think about with um, print media and this only really comes because the majority of my career in the automotive world has been very much focused around the internet. And of course the internet provides this wonderful tool which is analytics. And you can see within 24 hours of putting up a written article or a video or a social media post, you can see what performs well, what doesn't, which demographics enjoy it most, at what time of the day it tends to go down well. Now, of course, with print media, you do your research for your story, you write your story, you take your amazing pictures, it goes to print, it goes off. Was there any ever, or is there any ever, um, analytical route you can go down to know what's gone down really, really well? With print media, is that a thing? How does it work? You can to a point, but it's very slow. Yeah. So you get all the point of sale data. It's it's not very exciting. So I'll leave that for Jeff. He likes it. <laughs> um, and yeah, you can see which stores are selling, which areas, which countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you might have been up against a you know certainly with Octane, you might have been up against a, a heavily promoted copy of. Classic and sports car. Yeah. So your sales were low and you think, oh, so I shouldn't have put those cars on the cover. Mm. And actually it might have just been something else entirely. Um, and then there, were ti- there was a time at Dennis uh, Publishing who bought Octane after mm-hmm. four or five years. Uh, and they had a new newsstand director there and we got a McLaren F1 on the cover. And it sold 20% more copies than the previous few oh, issues. Wow. And he said, for one, he said, well, can you do any more McLaren F1 covers? <laughs> <laughs> Tricky. Uh, and then he showed us some of the figures and I said, well, aren't those figures 20% higher? You know, you've put out 20% more copy yeah. and it's sold 20% more. So, yeah. Wow. And um, they just wouldn't accept that. <laughs> there you go. All business entrepreneurs out there, if you want to sell 20% more, 
produced 20% more stock and it it's was faultless. <laughs> yeah, that is. Um, I, I do like the idea of uh, yeah somebody just saying, uh, and, and I think there'll be a lot of people, especially in our industry, that listen to this in all aspects, both uh, digital and print media, and even events, even that have had a, a big boss or a, or a decision maker somewhere going, hey, 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 that worked really well. Just do that again. And the idea of just just printing magazines with F ones on the cover, <laughs> I'd, I'd love it personally. But uh, yeah, not not quite how it how it works yeah. really, is it? Tempting, though, isn't it? It is tempting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. I tempting. find something similar in you know when I put on like an Instagram post of something. It's like if I only ever put photographs of usually red Ferraris. It's usually a red yeah, classic sports before. car. It's amazing. No, I get loads loads of loads of likes and stuff, and I think to myself, but that's just not that just it's not really. I mean, maybe you could make a full Instagram page just of red sports cars I don't know one of my favourite Instagram accounts on this subject is make green great again if you've seen this one <laughs> and it's, seen this. It, it is 100% photos of green cars <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant I don't know who runs it like, I have a feeling it's a friend of a friend I, I think I know I think I know who it is but it's just incredible it, because it is just green cars so like maybe sports cars or normal cars anything hmm. anything literally a brand new Porsche GT3s in oak green obviously best colour ever to, through to, yeah, old Lamborghini Miuras in green. It's just, everything's green. Make green great again. I don't think I want to make red great again because, what was it? It's the most popular car colour in the 90s, I think, and I don't think I'm quite ready to see it again. Like, <laughs> another, like, red E-type I'd be a bit fed up with, to be honest. Is that That's just... a very first world problem, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> I see too many red E-types. How many times a week do you hear that sentence? <laughs> you kind of forget my, my maybe my, my second job. <laughs> yes, yes, true, true. <laughs> Although, funnily enough, we haven't got a red one at the minute. Oh, well. well it's been shop-blasted, so now it's grey. <laughs> so... Perfect. Well, if, if you have a red E-type and you'd like to uh, really bother Amy, then send it in. <laughs> Please, we can yeah. colour changes. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, let's go back to... Um, I always like to delve into the... The, the, the beginnings really of how people end up in this wonderful industry that we're all in whether that's bit as a writer as a photographer as a event person however it may be where did it all start for you and, and ultimately how did you end up deciding that uh, it was better to go things your own way ultimately is this where I said well I was born in um, <laughs> no but it was obviously the childhood thing it always is isn't it yeah my dad was really into cars we had a fairly ramshackle garage uh just you know drive uh and garage at, at home and there was an inspection pit in that in the garage oh wow so a lot of dad's friends came around with that like, mgbs and healy sprites and things like that so there was that when i was really really young my dad was quite into cars he took me to vscc vintage sports car yeah. club racing at silverstone i remember uh, my granddad was into cars. In fact, both were. My uncle Phil, uh, or my, who's my mum's brother, he was massively into cars. He'd have a new performance car every single year. He'd have Capri 2.8i. He had the Lotus Carlton. He had all sorts of stuff. We have an uncle Phil like that too, don't we, John? Really? <laughs> we do, actually, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you very much, Uncle Phil. Yeah, we like Uncle Phil. Uh, yeah, he was very good for that. Uh, then my stepdad was into cars. It, it was just, you know, a disease, really. It was a terrible thing. And uh, my dad bought me a Honda C50 step-through moped-type thing when I was about 11, I think, uh, just to <laughs> cool. start playing around with it and work out how <laughs> engines worked. And then I just kept buying things with pocket money and paper-round money, so I had a whole fleet of Honda step-throughs. It was just never-ending. It's disastrous, really, for my parents. <laughs> The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. 
I, I think I read somewhere that your was it your parents said, you know, there's no money in classic cars or in cars. You should probably go and do something else. Actually, it was my... I think they probably said that because <laughs> uh, I wanted to be a motorcycle mechanic. So I left school at uh, actually at 15, which sounds like I'm, I was born in the Middle Ages or something. <laughs> but because my birthday is in August, I was actually 15 when I left school. And I don't think anyone even noticed at school. So I did all right in my exams and I just sort of drifted away. Mm. Wanted to do a course on motorcycle mechanics, did a little bit during the summer and thought, yeah, nah, maybe not for me. And then a, an apprenticeship came up at Marconi, so I became a Marconi apprentice. But just before that, I spoke to a careers teacher. and They'd They're, said, they're full of wisdom here. Yeah, they said, well, if that's your hobby, do not go into cars or bikes. So, yeah, that was it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but why? What, what was her reasoning for that? Um, it would ruin the hobby. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And I think there is something in that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. You know, photography is technically still my hobby, but there's been definitely times where I've had to not take any pictures because I'm just done. Mm. Um, but that's a, I suppose the funny thing about, you know, we're in this room, we're, we're all passionate about cars and bikes, but we all work with cars and bikes. Yeah. So how have we not lost the interest? Or have you in the past, especially doing the magazines, have you ever lost the interest and just think I just want to get away from from automotive things for a while? I think I've had times where I didn't need to go to any more car shows. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, every weekend and your man in a stand at a car show. But actually then go to go to a show that's just a little bit out of what I normally do, say Santa Pod Dragstalgia or something like that, with my friends, mm. where nobody's going to come and say, oh, you know, can we do this on... Octane, Magneto, Classic Cars, or wherever I was at the time. Um, yeah, you must have a lot of people saying, oh, you know a great story, this. Yeah, like, which is brilliant. It's, it's, yeah. You know, it's, what, it's how it works, really. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it does mean you can't do the off-duty thing. And I, I don't mean that does sound like the worst first-world problem moan ever, <laughs> and it's not at all. It's brilliant. But just every now and again to go to a show where I don't have to be looking for features too much and I can relax yeah that's brilliant and i absolutely love it that's my that's always been the show aspect has always been the bit that i've always struggled with the most because again like that famous careers of well yeah like your careers advice said if that's your hobby don't do it as a job i've heard both sides of it because of course there's that lovely saying isn't there if you find a job in an area that you love you'll never work a day in your life or whichever however it's worded by whoever's quoting it um and i i i kind of swing either side of that argument because there are times where I've definitely thought especially back on my when I was mainly hosting events and running car events and exactly that going to events like Le Mans Classic with a group of people where you're looking after a group and you're hosting effectively the amount of times where I'd stand in a gazebo or I'd just get a, a tiny glimpse of a track while somebody's telling me about their Delahaye and I'm pretending to be interested <laughs> I often did think oh, why didn't I do why didn't I go into horse events or something I have no interest in at all because then I wouldn't mind standing in this gazebo and talking to somebody about their horse or you know, <laughs> the, whatever you drive horses and yeah as you can tell my uh, equine knowledge is peak <laughs> um and for me yeah it, that was always it it was the event aspect but then there are so many other parts of the job that far outweigh that where i find myself surrounded with beautiful cars and amazing people and fascinating environments where i think god if i wasn't doing this as a job there'd be no way i'd be here sat in one of the passenger seats of an f1 or overlooking the 
uh, the, the hairpin at, on the top of the Fairmont Hotel in Monaco. It's it, you know this it, there definitely swings roundabouts to it. My I think I don't know what you guys think, but my advice to anyone if if they've had that same comment from somebody saying oh you know ooh, if you work in a cake shop you'll get sick and tired of cakes so don't work in a, don't work in cars if you love cars nonsense i think because you will always find your route into it the car world as we've said is probably the most quoted thing i've ever said on this podcast but the car world is pretty much solely occupied by people who have a passion for cars it is a passion-led industry we are all in it because we love cars and cars are this bizarre unnecessary um accessory to our lives really because of course we all know we could all be driving around in Nissan Microsoft Vauxhall courses but we choose not to because there are better things more exciting things and <laughs> more fascinating things for us to do and because of that and that reality um it will always be interesting so yeah I I, I hope that anyone listening who's at that perhaps interesting time of their lives where they're going oh, what am I going to do maybe that's not such a good idea um yeah what, yeah what advice would you give people who are listening young, young youngsters that are listening or not even youngsters people who think i am bored with my nine to five and i think i fancy starting a car magazine what advice would you give them it'd be really flippant to say don't do it because um, <laughs> you've now done it multiple but i times. don't mean it because actually i can't imagine having done anything else mm. i've met the most amazing people been to the most amazing places nobody will have had any sympathy with us moaning about going to car events correct uh, <laughs> yeah. unrightly so yeah um what do you do well you go for it but you you work out a plan and you get to know as many people as possible and you badger mm -hmm. people and you just look into what you want to do and why you want to do it uh and yeah all you can do is just keep badgering people really <laughs> and make as many contacts as possible and i think people like me generally we might be busy but we're always really keen to help bring more people in mm-hmm um, I've got a friend who I was talking to on email last night, or rather I was talking to his son on email last night because he wants to get into car journalism. He wasn't sure which A-levels to take, so we're just back and forwards on that. Uh, and it's really encouraging that people still want to do that. I suppose that's the other thing. I, I do worry that the passion for cars, especially classic cars, will be dying as the, the generations kind of come along because you hear about kids now that don't want to get taken to prom in a lovely, I know, classic anything they want to get taken to their prom in a tesla and mm. you just think but why and mm. it does concern me that our you know this this wonderful car world that we're in will end up kind of fizzling out when we all i don't know kick the bucket or i don't know have a too enthusiastic day on a racetrack yeah it's it's an interesting one isn't it because i think i i think there will definitely be periods of cars that become less appealing i often think about pre-war i have a a bit of an unhealthy obsession with pre-war cars, but only up to a certain point. So if, you, if we're talking about you know, Bentleys, Delahays, that sort of thing from the 1920s and 30s, that really gets me excited. But anything pre prior to that, early 1900s, that's not a car as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's got horse cart wheels. It goes, do, 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 do. It, it has steam coming out of it. No interest to me whatsoever. So I think there will be, as time goes on, I think the main separation I always find is, is that, it's something that's unrecognisable as a car. And for me, that's what kind of turns me away. But now I know there'll be people that will look at a 1927 Blower Bentley and go, but that doesn't look like a car to me either because I have to change gear by scratching my ankle and the handbrakes on the outside and my passenger has to lube my suspension with his foot. <laughs> all, all of these things are true. Um, and I think as time goes on, people will kind of lose track of that chapter. But I'd like, I'd like to think, perhaps slightly uh, misty-eyed, that 
certainly cars that are recognisable, certainly from the, say, 50s onwards, 60s and 70s were fantastic eras for cars. I think there will always be people of all ages and even generations beyond us that will look back on those favourably because they will always be recognised as cars, as things that they can get in and drive and all the pedals are the same and the gear sticks the same. Um, I hope, anyway. Yeah. I really do. I hope as well. I imagine it will do. But, um, I mean, talking about you know, cars generally in your favourite eras, mm. you've had quite a few cars, Mr Lillywhite. Mm. <laughs> how 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 many roughly do you think you've you've owned? It's about fifty. Um, <laughs> That's pretty good. And I always I say this figure, and then I think that can't be right. So I write it down, and I have got a list at home that I update every now and again. <laughs> um, and it is, and some of them, no, no, all of them have been terrible. Um, <laughs> I don't really own really good cars, and when I get a car to a point where it's really good, I usually sell it because I don't know what to do with it after that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so often if I'm meant to be going to a really nice event, I don't have anything to go in because I've taken my nice car apart again. And, uh, <laughs> it's just what happens, isn't it? So I've cut right back, but I have had about 50. Okay. Um, what are some of your, your, your most memorable, not necessarily your favourites, your most memorable hmm. uh, cars of the, that 50? Well, actually, probably the most memorable and my favourite was a Triumph Herald. Cool. Uh, oh, okay. And that's, I'd had a whole load of Mark 1 and 2 escorts right through college and things. I did electronics degree with Marconi and then everything started falling apart uh, at Marconi and I started thinking about another job. And just at that point, my Mark 1 escort with a two litre engine in that I'd built uh, and, and spent all my student grant and all my sponsorship on it. Uh, was stolen and about two weeks before it was stolen I got done by the police for sliding around a roundabout (laughs) got points so my insurance was suddenly well basically I was almost uninsurable so I found this Triumph Herald for sale and it had never been messed with Um, it it was a bit scruffy and I thought well that will do and that got me reading classic and sports car and particularly practical classics so then when Marconi started falling apart and it looked like I was going to lose my job, which I'd only had there postgraduate for about six months anyway. Um, I just wrote, uh, wrote to all these magazines and Practical Classics wrote straight back and said, Vicky Butler Henderson has just moved to Max Power. So that kind of dates things. <laughs> uh, come for an interview and I got the job. No so way. That was, that was a, so I've just gone off on a massive tangent, but that's <laughs> one of the reasons why my Triumph Herald is my favourite car because it kind of helped change my life. Do you still have it? No. Why? Uh, to buy my daughter a pram. So. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> There's so much money in publishing. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is the one. Uh, whenever we've had that kind of, what would be your advice be? Well, it's, it's fascinating talking to different people in different fields of the automotive world, but certainly from the journalism background, the, the one common theme when it comes to advice is please don't expect to ever be. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Be a millionaire in this career because you won't. You won't. You do this because you like writing about cars and because that's good fun. Um, I want to get on to the early stages of your journalism career because that's definitely something that's going to be fascinating for a lot of people. But... Um, I can't skip forward past the cars bit yet because that is that is a crucial one. Um, I won't ask you to list them all, but certainly uh, you, you mentioned, and I'm sure this is something that so many people listening to are going to be able to relate to and go, uh, yeah, I've done that. And that, that, that is the whole fix the car up to a point where it's perfect and then get rid of it, which makes no sense really when you think about it. But we've all done it time and time and time again. I've done it more times than I can count. Uh, what are those cars? Um, not necessarily because they're, potentially worth a lot of money now but that's always a, a, a fun little recap and um, what are those cars that you really miss or wish you hadn't sold yeah i wish i hadn't sold the herald obviously um but I mean, of it's still on the road could you find it no uh a few weeks after i sold it the guy oh, no. uh who worked in a prison and had had the some of the prisoners work on the uh, on the car uh, the brakes failed and he smashed it to pieces. I'm not sure if those oh, no. facts are related at all. Oh, wow. But, yeah, we <laughs> did, a story, did smash though. it. Yeah. So sorry. it's gone, I'm afraid. Oh. I'm um, sorry for your loss. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I pushed into you. Yeah, what other things would you... Citroen SM, because oh, that was really? one of those yeah. really stupid, stupid things to have done. Uh, buying a $1,500 Citroen SM from New York, unseen, shipping it over driving it, um, possibly and not all that legally, from Felixstowe docks. You might have to cut that bit out, obviously. <laughs> um, it was a long time ago, it's fine. Yeah, exactly, it'll be fine. Um, and then restoring it, right, sort of stripped it right back wow. uh, with help from a guy who's since died, sadly, Andrew Brody, who was the Citroen SM man. Mm. And we got it to a point where it's, it was stunning. Uh, and... I got to a point where I felt I couldn't take it any further. So I sold it to a big collector who's put quite a bit more money into it mm. and has made a really great job of it. But it was the most amazing experience to just work out how everything worked. Maserati engine and yeah. Citroen hydraulics and crazy, crazy sort of low volume engineering. Uh, that was a brilliant thing to have and I drove it around a bit and I did feel slightly like I was driving a grenade with a pin pulled out <laughs> but actually it's a much much easier car to work on than people think it's far more reliable and far far better than anyone would ever think it's okay. just they weren't treated very well in, at the time mm. so that was one um, Porsche 914 which again I bought unseen from the states and which never really ran that well with me because um, <laughs> I ripped off the ignition. I put Webers on it and just messed around with it. And it looked amazing. It was lowered. It had Marla wheels. It just looked really spot on. But we had all manner of adventures. We went to Le Mans in it and um, broke down on the way to Le Mans. And uh, I had a little temper tantrum which I never do. I never lose my temper at anything. <laughs> I lost my temper at this car. <laughs> wanted to leave it there. And uh, my friend Matt Howell um, persuaded me that actually we could fix it. And we did. So our big convoy sat there on the hard shoulder while he helped me fix it. And off we went to Le Mans where I realised I'd forgotten my tent, oh, no. uh, <laughs> etc. Um, 
God, what else? There have been so many. Loads of Golf GTI Mark 1s and 2s. Triumph Heralds and Vitesses again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark 1 and 2 Escorts. Uh, Subaru Impressors. I'm on my third one, one of which is sat outside, the oldest one I've had. I was going to say, is one of them your, I have a note here, your grandfather's? Ah, well, I've got my grandfather's Saab 96 V4. Oh, nice. Yes. So that's been sat for years. Uh, my uncle, a different uncle, my uncle John gave it to me because uh, after my granddad died, he had a load of work done on it, then realised it wasn't really for him. Mm. And so he very generously said, right, you have it, but sort of carry on with it. Mm. And I didn't do much with it for a long time because I had the Citroen and various other projects, but it's now sorted, really looking good, and it'll be back on the road in the spring. Surely that's a car that you won't be able to get rid of. I will never get rid of it. Well, that scares the life out of me because if I sit in the back, I remember my granddad's driving, which was appalling. <laughs> really, really appalling. And when he died, my grand said, well, I won't miss going in that car because your granddad, every time he'd drive along and he'd just fiddle with that stick in the middle and make the car jerk. So, he's changing gear. But, um, yeah, so slightly weird memories of that car, but I do love it. That's adorable, though. It is. Um, we were going to go on to your yeah beginning of your journey of journalism because mm. you've gone from engineering in radars. Is that right? Yes, radars. Right, wow, top research. I know. <laughs> this is my, 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 my quick fifteen-minute Google beforehand. No, and um, yeah, to, to journalism. So was was journalism something that you've always thought? You know what? I'm pretty good at writing, and I like cars, and it seems to be an obvious marriage. Or was it something you kind of not fell into or were forced into, but as you said, just opportunities arose and then you thought, well, I'll give this a go and see how it goes. I think there were various steps. There was a teacher at school, an English teacher, uh, Mrs Moriarty, who was just so good and kind of inspired me. Mm. One of those, you know, everybody's got a teacher story, haven't they? Mm. There's just one teacher who did something. That was one step. And I thought, actually, I do like writing things. Then I belonged to the Sporting Escort Owners Club when I had my escorts and I started writing articles for them and actually thought, oh, this is really cool. Mm. I really like writing about it. Uh, And that must have planted a seed. And then at Marconi, all the people in our lab were into cars. There was a TVR3000M, there was a Chevette HS, there were a few escorts. Loads of people were into really special cars when you look back. And so there were car magazines everywhere. And that was yet another step. Do you find that you have to read a lot to be a good writer? Or is it something that you feel you can just be good at naturally? I think writing, the sort of flow of writing comes naturally, to, should come naturally to people who want to be writers. Mm-hmm. But you can never read enough. Yeah, uh, and look at different treatments and listen to your own voice, you know, as you're reading your stuff back, kind of listen to it in your head and think, all right, am I getting a flow there mm. and experiment with different ways of writing? And certainly I really enjoyed that side of it. Do you I mean, still, sorry, putting in, do you still read a lot now to make sure, or do you, do you find it so easy now that you don't feel like you, you need to, like, I suppose when I'm looking at, um, I, I'm always continually inspired by amazing photographers and I don't ever want to just kind of not give up because I, I enjoy it as well, but I, I want to make sure I don't ever kind of, slow down or get worse because there are so many incredible photographers out there and um, just to continue being inspired so to keep your the quality I suppose of the the, the mag- of Magneto it, it must be something you need to keep on top of and make sure you're kind of like scrubbed up on your your car words 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, reading a lot of magazines, uh, but and books as well, fiction and nonfiction. I absolutely love uh, sort of travel books. You know, the the classic Ted Simons, um, Venus Travels. Mm-hmm. Jupiter's Travels, golly, almost got that wrong. Um, just reread that, and that's years old. Mm. And all those kind of books are great. And just the way they tell stories and the way they conjure up images is fantastic. So I love that side. But actually, I probably I don't write anywhere near as much as I used to. Uh, and the bit that fascinates me more than anything now is how magazines are put together, and how different magazines flow, and little tricks they've got for pulling in readers even to the point of Grazia or something like that, where you've mm. got the 10 events uh, or the big happenings of the, of the week or the month. Um, and then how different paper stocks are used. So really anorak <laughs> stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I've been doing magazines for a long time and I really love magazines. And it's very frustrating that quite often I will look at a shelf and think, oh, I don't like any of these magazines. And, I, you know, I, I want to like them. I want to spend all my money on them. As what, things to keep or things, yeah. bits of art or because you're interested in the, the, what they're talking about? Both. Okay. It's something I found interesting when you were discussing, uh, talking about it, of the, um, what you read is almost not similar to what you write, but it ends up being highly inspirational to what you end up putting on paper because I thought to myself, you know what, I'd really like to get into writing myself. And I'm, I, I don't think I'm too bad, but I'm def- definitely a photographer. But I thought, you know what, maybe... If I could kind of do a bit of both, then that'd be a nice way of going on one shoot and being able to get not twice the amount of money, but, you know, a little bit more. And at the time, I think I was reading the Lord of the Rings books, one of, or yeah, anyway, started to try and write this article about, I can't remember what I was writing about, my word. I, I bored myself trying to read it because I was like, I'm going into way too much detail here, just from simply from thinking, you know, you're suddenly looking, well, I was thinking about how Tolkien would be talking about a blade of grass. And I'm like, nobody's interested in a blade of grass. I've got to be talking about cars here or something. And so it's it's interesting to see how inspirational yeah, what you are consuming is going as an output. And so I suppose it's interesting as well on if you want to get you know better at videos of car things and watch great videos, don't watch crap and then think, how can I be better than that? Watch the great stuff and think, how do they do it so well, I suppose. Mm. But um, are you? I mean, are you inspired by any car magazine? Maybe I shouldn't talk about this. It's been your competitors. Or um, you could get into writers that have inspired you, who yeah, perhaps aren't around anymore or have retired. Yeah, the classic that everybody uh, mentions is Russell Belgian, isn't it? And mm. Mikey mm-hmm. from Roadrat mentioned him. Yeah, he was kind of a bit before my time in a way. But I look back and think, oh yeah, yeah, that's really special. Uh there was uh, there's an American writer who's still around, and I cannot think of his name, <laughs> which is typical. Uh, but he did a brilliant column for years, and I think it's in Road and Track. And the big American friends are going to be screaming at me now because <laughs> uh, I should know who it is. Uh, what but was he, the article about? I'll see if I can do a quick Google. I can't even remember. <laughs> uh, he would always he'd do a column about sort of life in the workshop, really, and just you know. Uh, trying to find his the right spanners and and he was really into motorbikes and 60s cars from what i remember um yeah i'm totally failing this i'm very sorry that's (laughs) the worst story ever but he was brilliant just the way he was able to talk about things that we could really relate to anyone who's into spannering on cars and you know Mm. in my case taking them apart and very rarely putting them back together (laughs) 
Um, he kind of got that, that whole psychology of it and all those stupid little things you do. He was brilliant for that, which is utterly pointless for me to say because we don't know who it is. <laughs> do you think there's a... Is there a, a key ingredients list to what makes a good story? Whether that's a car review or whether that's just a overview of an event or you know something like Pebble Beach, which, of course, is, is an event that a lot of people won't necessarily have access to personally, but they love reading about it or they love watching videos and things. What do you find makes a good story? Oh, so difficult, isn't it? It's, it's hu- the human side mm-hmm. uh, is always fascinating. Uh, you obviously want to hear or to, to read something that you don't necessarily know or didn't necessarily know beforehand. But then sometimes you want to read things that just cement your view and you go, oh, yeah, that's, that, that is why I knew. Mm. But I almost didn't know I knew it. Uh, and it's told in a really interesting way. Um, it's very difficult to, to pin it down. Some features just work beautifully. Um, John Simister, sort of current writer, has been around for years, but you read his words and they just flow in the most amazing way. Mm. Um, He's a very lovely man as well. He is a lovely <laughs> man, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's so knowledgeable. But if you try and, uh, from a magazine side, an editing side, if you try and cut his words to fit a layout, you can't do it. Mm. Because every word leads into the next word and every sentence leads into the next sentence, every paragraph, etc. cetera. Uh, and it's such an amazing craft. While others, you've got to cut it from 1,500 words to 1,000 words and you go, yep, chop, that's all gone. It sounds really brutal. Yeah. But it's because they've, they've just not written it well enough. Mm. Uh, so I think you have to have that flow. You've got to have some intrigue. You've got to pull people in with something that they can relate to. Um, the Aston Martin Bulldog story on mm. the front cover. Yeah, because that was the last time that I saw you was on HMS Prince yeah. of Wales, wasn't it? Yeah. And I was like, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, that was, yep, that was then. So, I mean, yeah, how, when, sorry, I put it in there. But how, how do you talk about, okay, they put a car on a ship. How do we make that an interesting story? Yeah, that's just bizarre, isn't it, really? <laughs> um, I'm hooked already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think the story of the car is fascinating. Mm. Uh, the, the fact that it was on a ship was just bonkers anyway. But the whole, when you look back, at that story uh, of that car and how you got these engineers sort of with no budget whatsoever so you got that sort of human side of them doing almost a you know not quite in their spare time but they were going way beyond what they should have been doing to create this crazy car that was Britain's first supercar Uh, and then you've got all the intrigue of it going off to the Middle East and the way it was treated and the new owner blowing the thing up just down the road from Newport Pagnell um, (laughs) on his first drive on the M1. Um, (laughs) Just some really mad stuff goes on. So you need all those human stories. Mm. I don't think there's any point in having, say, a race report where that car went faster and that one went there and blah, Mm. blah, blah. You do want to know all the stories behind it. Yeah, that's exactly as you say there, that, that human element, isn't it? The idea of you as the reader reading about a car that's completely unobtainable. You know, that bull, Aston Martin Bulldog is a complete, it's one off really, isn't it? It's one mm-hmm. of one. So the idea that somebody's bought that once upon a time, it's then blown up on the M1. Everybody reading that 
can imagine what that must be like. <laughs> that human element of going, oh God, could you imagine being that guy phoning up the dealership and going, um, <laughs> it's broken now. I don't know if you, even know if you would phone up a dealership in that situation, like... AA, can you please come and get me? Yeah, what's your car? The Aston Martin Bulldog. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting trying to talk about something that's completely not relatable in terms of, yeah, as, as you said, John, you'll never be able to own that, drive that. And, you mm. know, if you see it, it'll be, it'll be cool. So I suppose flipping it around, how do you talk about or make something interesting that's very much not interesting? Like when you do things like car reviews that you're just like, this is not interesting. How do I make this exciting <laughs> to read? I've been really, really lucky in that, well, partly by design, uh, I haven't had to go off and drive a car that I don't really care about. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've driven lots and lots of classic cars and I've driven lots of new cars, but they're always fairly interesting ones. But it's the, it, it is the older stuff that I generally drive and there's always a story to them and there's always something interesting. You've got all the history of where it's been and what it's done even if it's done nothing why has it done nothing Mm. how come it's been sat in this garden for however long so there's always something there um i've never had to go and review the latest i don't know what i'm going to say now kia sorry kia (laughs) um they're brilliant cars but yeah how do you write about that is that something that somebody like john simister manages to do or clarkson does Mm. from a really flippant point of view but actually very cleverly the Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Yeah, um, that was the one I was going to refer to. That, yeah. And we've, you know, we've talked about whimsically about Clarkson's writing, or certainly I have, because um, I'm a big fan of his, his style. And I think that is a real talent, isn't it? When you can talk about a very, very run-of-the-mill Volvo estate and yet make it a really captivating story. I mean, that in itself is a, is a huge skill. Do you have any cars, either from a car launch you've gone on or one you've been given as a press car that really stick in your memory is one that... Because I occasionally do this as, as an occasional writer. I'll drive a car and I'll think, I start mapping out the story as I'm driving, going, oh, this is so good. I know exactly what I'm going to say. And you almost want to get your voice recorder out in your phone and start saying things. Do you have any that really stick in your memory from over the years? New cars or any car? Both, yeah. Oh, so many. Uh, and I, I, try, I start writing the, the opening paragraph in my head. Yeah. Uh, I always do that. I can't help myself. Um, so many Shah of Iran's Lamborghini Miura. Oh, wow. Uh, that was quite cool. A BMW 328, but pre-war, yeah. uh, which oh, is almost beautiful. like a sort of... my favourites, You feel yeah. like a fighter pilot driving yeah. it. Uh, astonishing thing. It doesn't look anything special. It takes you... You know, you were talking about pre-war cars. Yeah. I had no interest in them at all. Mm. But the more you get into cars, the more you think, oh, how did that work? How did that That's work? That's it, yeah. And you were talking about pre-1910 or something like yeah. that. London to Brighton, uh, did it in an old, I think it was a 1904 Wolseley. It's probably one of the greatest motoring experiences really? I've yeah, ever, ever had. It was, yeah. yeah. Um, it was, what, what made it so, so great for you? It was the atmosphere. It was the, the, the sort of challenge of making the thing work and stop. <gasps> oh, were you driving or were you a passenger? <laughs> I was driving. Oh, my word. Yeah. I mean, the, there was probably nothing scarier than going down a, a, a hill in one of those <laughs> things and you start at 30 miles an hour and you end up at the bottom of the hill at 40 or 45 miles an hour and you have no way of doing much about oh it yeah. uh, but what a phenomenal thing and everyone's waving and mm. just a remarkable atmosphere and really you, you realize how good the cars are yeah you know as you say they've got 
horse carriage wheels. <laughs> <laughs> They've got tiller steering, some of them. The brakes aren't very good, to say the least. Yeah. But they get you there and they, they do all the things that a modern car does ish. <laughs> and I guess there's that there's that sort of route, isn't there, into ultimately this contraption that I'm pedaling is is ultimately what's led me to then have experiences driving some of the most amazing new cars and supercars and yeah. really really special stuff to this day so yeah, what about new cars are there any launches you can think of where you thought oh my goodness that they're really onto something here hmm. some of the um land rover are renowned for amazing launches mm-hmm. and the last generation range rover going through morocco and they just they really push you you know i'm not i'm not an off-road driver I've done a few things with Land Rover, mm. but to go through sand dunes in Morocco and then through the Atlas Mountains and through riverbeds, and you think, all right, nobody's, you know, so many people will, will be completely unaware of what this vehicle can do. Yeah. But what an amazing experience. Um, and the same with uh, Land Rover Discovery. They, uh, we did something in the States with them, uh, which sounds very privileged, and it was. <laughs> uh, but... It really showed how how remarkable that that vehicle was, and I'm not a fan of how it looks, but the things it does mm. are incredible. Yeah, I have to have also. I suppose this is what the great thing about being a journalist and photographer is that we do get we are very lucky in that we get sent out to go and experience these these vehicles where they're you know wanting to be shown off in their best light. And I was also in in Utah with them um, with with Lando for a shoot, and some of the 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 capabilities of some of the cars I, I was shocked i thought that's not going to get up there that it's, mm. it's like it's it's almost like a wall it's a mm. i don't know over 45 degree wall up and you just think a, a rock and it's just on road tires and you think how the hell is that going to get up and anyway yeah. just yeah fascinating what's what some of them can can really do yeah um so no yeah but i mean what would be one of the it's an obvious question people ask me in the same i'm going to do the same and ask you but the most exciting interesting adventurous um, I don't know, not even necessarily press. No, let's say a story, like adventure that you've had to do for for a story. Um, I'm trying to think. There's now. always something that sticks in your mind, and you yeah, think. they usually are. Uh, for me, it's little experiences a lot of the time. Uh, Norman Jewis, when he was, I think he was an awarded uh, awarded an MBE, uh, and he asked me to say, "This is a Jaguar test driver." Uh, from 50s, 60s, right into the 70s. He asked me to go along with him for the um, ceremony at Buckingham Palace. So I went with him to do that. So this isn't the kind of adventure you were envisaging at all. Yeah, but I like this answer already. it was such an amazing experience to be there with Norman, uh, Antonio Keefe from Jaguar. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then at the end of that, we surprised him by taking him to Sterling Moss's house. So he sat there with Sterling Moss and Norman, and they were sat together like two schoolboys. And then <laughs> Susie was, uh, Sterling's wife, Susie, was uh, sort of telling them off because they were coming up with all these stories about these girls. So, oh, I remember them. <laughs> and, you know, Goodwood was the best place for crumpets. Oh, my God. <laughs> you can't say that. But they were so funny. And they were just, yeah. you know, they were both very small men, but such characters. Yeah. And I was sat there witnessing this and kind of, giggling along with them, thinking, how on earth am I here? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, not what you expected me to ask. No, but that's much better But answer. that's brilliant. I uh, had some amazing drives through the canyons um, in, in the States with 
really well-known collector in, in California, um, Bruce Mayer, in his Ferrari 250 GT CFAC hot rod, okay. uh, driving through the canyon roads to the rock store, which is um, an amazing sort of biker hangout. But I remember reading about it when I was probably 13, uh, and there was a story, and I think it was in Witch Bike or The Biker or something like that, and it really captured my imagination. It was about all these bikers who'd go there, and then they'd go off through the canyons and almost racing through the canyons, and there'd be deaths, there'd be terrible injuries, but they were so dedicated mm. to this rock store. So I went there in a Ferrari with Bruce, who's the nicest man you can possibly imagine. We pulled over halfway to the rock store to... Um, uh, to just to take some pics, I think, from what I remember. And a motorbike pulls over. And a uh, guy flips up the, the front of his crash helmet. Uh, it's one of those sort of ones where the whole front comes up. Yeah. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing? It's a terrible accent. It's not Welsh. Um, <laughs> and it was Jay Leno. And it's oh like, okay, <laughs> this is the most mad day ever. And, you know, I'm just this guy from Watford who's somehow landed in this bizarre position <laughs> of, of doing these things. So, yeah, that was quite good. Um, and racing, I guess. Uh, racing in a little Austin A35. And I, I was looking at some of the, the old videos of it last night. Just complete coincidence. And uh, watching a little battle with James Martin, the chef, in his, yeah. in his Ford 100E. Uh, and we had such a good battle at Goodwood. I'm thinking, I was driving at the members meeting. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I'm not that good a driver, but that was astonishing. <laughs> So, yeah, those are the kind of things. Amazing. And on the flip side, are there any less enjoyable, shall we say? I wanted to say disastrous. So you could say you could, could get onto that subject. But both with perhaps with cars that you've been on a launch for that you've really been looking forward to. And it's actually been a bit underwhelming. But then also adventures that have gone wrong. I'm sure there are millions of them. <laughs> <laughs> and your Porsche to Milan, uh, Mel, uh, Le Mans doesn't count. Oh yeah, yeah. No, the forgotten tent of it. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. the thing the thing is with a disaster adventure, is it's always going to be a good story, isn't it? Yes. It is. So whilst you may yeah. not look back on that memory and go, okay, that was actually a really difficult thing to do, but it made a good story. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I, I think with the the sort of new cars and the ones that you hold up as being really special, sometimes they're just maybe a bit anodyne mm-hmm. after you've driven. Lamborghinis and old Ferraris and things like that and then you get in a modern supercar or hypercar and they're phenomenal things yeah but are they really the answer uh and they just feel they're not engaging until you're driving them way too fast for the road which is maybe me and whatever age I'm at (laughs) (laughs) this is a bit wrong uh but they are phenomenal they're the most incredible feats of engineering but I think I'd rather cars just came back a step and were a, a little bit lighter and smaller. Obviously, it's not going anywhere near that kind mm, of way. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes I've come away from supercar launches going, yeah, it's, it's okay. It's yeah. phenomenal, but yeah. Um, as far as disasters go, I mean, you obviously racing, sooner or later you can have a race where you do something stupid yeah. or you just sit at the side of the track waiting to be rescued for for the whole race and it's always the 45 minute race so you <laughs> sat there going, oh this is good yeah. um but no i'd say the probably that i've had a couple of scary incidents racing that that almost put me off where mm. i've had the a35s in particular were a bit prone to rolling 
Yes, uh, so I had one rolling in front of me at Brands Hatch, Ooh. and that scared the life out of me because I saw the guy looking at me as I wow. speared towards him on the racing line, and he was upside down, hanging in his harnesses, and I missed him, and he was fine, and it was all okay. But, you know, I'm not yeah. a professional racer. No. <laughs> uh, but other than that, no, life has been very good. Oh, that's good. Do you, just thinking back to your comment on the driving a supercar that perhaps is just a bit too fast and a bit too complicated for the road. Do you have a sweet spot memory for cars? Yeah, I have a very preferred era of cars. Do you, is there one that you look back on and think that was it, that was the pinnacle, Mm -hmm. things aren't going to get any better? It does move around a lot, this. Um, But I would say if you're in Ferraris, you're probably... I don't know, early 2000s, yeah. Ferraris, something like that, or as far as supercars go. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, again, they've got bigger. They have got much better, uh, much better to be in. Uh, but as far as the driving experience goes, I think because the cars are bigger and heavier and you don't really feel what you're doing anymore, mm. Yeah, I think since, yeah, early 2000s, I'm going to say. Yeah. Can I ask one kind of last question about where you think the future of let's go with I'm, I'm going to this very broad question future of media and cars generally do you think that uh, print will always be a thing do you think that cars will stay at least exciting to an extent or classic cars to still be around where do you think the future of these things are going to go okay uh I think print will stay around in the collector car market for quite a long time because it is something you'll collect mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about Magneto and making it look really special and making it look different from any other magazine, and I think that's where magazines need to go and where print needs to go. Um, I think in the new car world, do you need a magazine, a print magazine? Maybe not, but if there is going to be one, then it's got to be all about experiences. Don't do it about new launches and don't do it about new models. Do it about amazing experiences in new cars, mm. but don't try and do everything that's being done on the internet you know, several weeks beforehand. It's pointless. Mm. Why do that? Um, as far as cars go, I think there's still an amazing passion for cars. Um, with classic cars, there's a real danger that perception, public perception, will will kill them off, mm. where... Somebody looks at an old car and goes, oh, that terrible, stinky thing. Mm. But I think that's something that we all need to, to fight and point out that actually it's a very good thing. It, it's uh, it's a renewable thing. You know, the, the emissions aren't as good on a classic car, but they're hardly being used at all. That's right. Um, yeah. And there's so many skills being kept and um, so, so many people employed and so many amazing experiences with old cars and with new special cars mm. that we ha- we have to keep that going but i am at heart as well it's kind of a tree hugging hippie you know i don't want the world to 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 burn uh and i i love nature i love animals so i don't want to see all those things sacrificed for cars uh but i think we have to look very carefully at the way classic cars in particular are represented and modern cars and the way manufacturers again i'm going to bang on the the weight and the size and the power of them the fact that you can get a a very average audi just accelerating past you at some phenomenal rate because the guy's just on the paddle shift getting yeah uh i find that a bit tedious 
Mm. Um, and I think it's immoral that manufacturers are doing that and pushing power up higher and higher when they should be making them more efficient and but more interesting to drive. Here, here. I think that's uh, that's everything you've just said. There is going to be triggering a lot of nodding heads all over the world listening to that because because you're so right. Yep, and this is something we've spoken about both on previous podcasts, both on our radio show as well, where where there is this really bad rep that older cars are getting, and it's so unjust because, of course, like you say, the the, the, the classic cars that most of us have and cherish, they are a weekend car or an evening car or something you, you get out once in a while. Yes, okay, they might be a little bit worse for the environment in the sense of what they're burning, but ultimately the major part of that car from a carbon offset point of view, if we're getting really geeky here, has already happened because that happens in the build process. And the build process for most classic cars is stratospherically less than building a modern car. And especially when you're factoring in refining batteries, mining batteries, shipping the cars around the world to get built, the processes of how cars are made now and what's used and what materials, it doesn't even compare. So yeah, I, I always find myself saying very, very similar things to what you've said there, David, in the sense of, no, but hang on a minute, I get this. In fact, I did it with a, a friend of mine's <laughs> two doors down next door neighbour who came and moaned about the fact that, oh, you, you both drive sporty old cars and you shouldn't because it's bad for the environment. But then having delved into the conversation with this lady um she announced that she bought a new car every two years and i was like come on <laughs> you know think about it just think about it think about the bigger picture so i really hope that i hope that certainly in this time where where the world is seeming to become electrified and and as you say there's this bizarre power battle where everybody feels they need to be naught to 16 under three seconds now even in a audi a3 it's like, come on, that's, it, it shouldn't... Yes, fast cars can be very exciting, but it isn't necessary in all aspects of cars. We don't have to be going for that top speed stuff. There is possible to... It, it is possible to have a great time in a great car that doesn't need to be four tonnes and have a all-singing, all-dancing engine that's been built in four different corners of the planet. Um, so, yeah, I think, well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. It's been great to hear your, your insight. What's... Uh, What's next for you? Have you got anything that you're really looking forward to for this new year? Ah, oh, Magneto is so young, really. You know, it's only just turning three years old. Mm -hmm. So just building that more and more. Um, and there are so I think the the issue we did with Bulldog was the best one we've done so far. I'm really proud of that. It was uh, the photos, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, there were some <laughs> some photos of some bulldog restoration by some Amy Shaw. Like, you know. I've heard of her. They yeah. were very good. Very expensive. Very right? good. Yeah, yeah. terrible. Um, so keep building on that. But we do loads of things. That's kind of our our flagship. But we also do. Um, uh, we're doing a, a Pebble Beach book for Pebble Beach Concours. Okay. Uh, official seventieth anniversary book. Uh, so that will be out early next year. It's already sort of loads of orders have been taken, but. We'll actually see it at, uh, around that point. Um, we do a Concours yearbook. We do a load of motor racing stuff. We're doing, starting to do bits for manufacturers as well, which is really interesting. Oh, cool. We've just done uh, the first ever magazine for a, a hypercar manufacturer, which was really good fun. Did it in about two and a half weeks flat. So <laughs> wow. there were so many new challenges. And then we've relaunched our website. And there's just so much going on. Uh, and I find that really exciting. I like the... the we went on that new challenge thing. That's what it's all about. It, it's just yeah. learning and finding new challenges all mm. the time. Perfect. And that, let's give that website a plug. 
Oh, well, I better remember what it is then. It's uh, <laughs> magnetomagazine.com. Perfect. That is brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been, uh, yeah, really fascinating insight to hear this, uh, the, the progression of a world that I think, you know, as I alluded to at the beginning of this conversation, it's, it's one that a lot of people do kind of go, oh, print media, you know, is that still a thing? But it is still a thing. It is very much still a thing. And there is definitely passion in it. And if you are a listener that is at that exciting stage of your your life where you're thinking that it might be time for a change or it might be time to think about a career don't let it put you off um i mean be aware you're not going to be a millionaire but <laughs> the drive loads of great cars yeah you'll live like a millionaire you'll live like a millionaire, yeah. yeah some of the time <laughs> <laughs> then go and have beans on toast that's it that's exactly it thank you so much uh, david amy thank you so much thank you. um listener thank you so much as always if you would like to uh, engage with the show you can do that you can write to us via email podcast at drivenchat.com uh, we've also got our new brand new just launched website drivenchat.com where you can contact us via the website as well you can also look back on every single previous podcast episode that we've done as well as some written articles and some videos and other bits and pieces all around the stuff that we do and of course um, a, approximately 38,000 photographs by our very own Amy Shaw so there's loads to see um, so yes thank you very much for listening we look forward to coming back and giving you a, another podcast in oh I don't know about a week's time bye bye the Driven Chat podcast in association with Paramex Digital you dream it we bring it to life find out more at drivenchat.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, wow, you've made it to the end, the very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.